Okay, folks, we're going to go ahead and get started. If I could ask the folks at the back to please move to your seats, we would appreciate that. I see no one moving. You're not a very compliant bunch after a very long day. If folks could come to their seats, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the day. I think it's been incredible uh, and really actually not too much about our enjoyment, but really about our place in the larger story and how we can be a blessing and be able to be a part of what God is doing to minister to the least of these. I think it's been an incredible day. We're going to start with a question. We asked you to submit your questions via tweet and text, which I think makes us pretty cool and hip. So we're going to start with the first question I thought was pretty good. Somebody wants to know if folks could elaborate on the definition of justice. This is the Life and Justice Conference, and no one has given us uh, quite the definition that this person is looking for. So I'm going to ask the bishop to take that question. And uh, then if he would stop talking out of turn, I'm going to let Tom Davis weigh in as well. So, Bishop, we would love to hear from you about the biblical uh, roots of justice, if you don't mind. Please say that again. Yeah. <laughs> is it on? He's a, you're right. on. If you could just kind of elaborate uh, for our audience on some of your thoughts on the biblical roots of justice in life and, and really some of those definitional reasons why we're here today. Well, thanks for that easy question. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know that it is that difficult. I think it's, I think it's difficult to, to read through the pages of Scripture and not, uh, and in particular, I think the Old Testament, interestingly, to find all sorts of things about life and and justice justice it, it seems to me to, to put it very simply it just talks about our right relationships with others but it's rooted in our right relationship with god and um th- there's what justice righteousness is and i don't know how you can look at a page of of, of especially the old testament and not and not find God calling his people to that kind of relationship with him and therefore with one another. My goodness, read the, the prophets, um, Amos. Um, so there it is. There it is. It, it is grounded very much in, in scripture. Life, God is, God is the creator of life. God is the God of life. Jesus came that we may have life and have it uh, to, to the fullness. Life, of course, refers to our physical existence but also to our, our graced existence in Christ, that new and, and eternal life with him. Uh, I'm just jumping all around. I'm not particularly giving a class. I would have been more prepared if I was ready for that question. I but. thought it was great. All right. I, we don't want a class. I think we're done with classes. I think that's all fantastic. Right. Tom, I'd like to ask you to weigh in, and then any of our other panelists who'd like to talk about that. Again, uh, the biblical roots of why we're here today. Hmm. You know, uh, interestingly, I found a, a Bible. Of course, they have a Bible out for everything now, uh, right? I understand that. But this one's called the Poverty and Justice Bible. So over 2,000 verses on those issues you see all throughout the Old and New Testament. But one of them that I love uh, from the roots of justice is how God taught his people to live. And in Deuteronomy, you see this start to play out over and over. And he says in Deuteronomy 24, do not deny the justice, do an orphan a stranger, or a widow. Uh, for you remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and I, your God, redeemed you from there. And then he goes on to tell them in how they lived in this agrarian society and growing wheat and you know olives and all of this. As he said, when you go over your fields, don't go over them a second time. Leave what remains for the widow, the stranger, and the orphan, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Now, that whole passage in Deuteronomy 24 is loaded with all kinds of lessons, and it goes throughout the Old Testament and then into the New. But the principle is this, that God blesses each one of us, and that a portion of our blessing, our fields, belongs to those who are needy. Uh, You see this played out in the, the book of Ruth. When Ruth and Naomi are widowed, they're hungry, they're in a strange land, They say, what are we going to do? And they say, let's go into the fields of the fathers to see in whose eyes we find favor. And they find out they have a kinsman. His name is Boaz. This, of course, is like one of the the, the favorite books in the whole Bible for women because of the kinsman redeemer story and what, what Boaz does. And it's a beautiful picture of how the church is supposed to treat those who are needy. So I think it's very interesting that God built that in right from the very beginning, and we're supposed to emulate that and build it into our lives too. 
You know, the scripture that comes to my mind as you talk about that, Tom, I love that verse that says, do not encroach on the fields of the fatherless because their defender is strong and will take up their cause. And I think uh, that's that defender heart that we've been hearing the theme about all throughout the day. Any of the ladies down there on the end like to weigh in? Kimberly, you're itching to get in there. Go ahead. Um, I'm not a theologian. My husband is. He has that doctorate, but I sat at his feet a lot. And uh, one of the things that I really think we have to look at is the fact that justice is a characteristic of God. We don't, in and of ourselves, have it in us. It is a characteristic of God. He has it in its purest form, and he also has mercy in its purest form. And we have to keep both of those. We have to know who God is in all of his character traits. If we overfocus on justice, then we see a perpetrator as someone that we need to seek more like vengeance against. But we all need God's mercy as we seek his justice. And I think that's something really important for us to remember. We live in a fallen, broken world, and there is really no ultimate pure justice in this world. But I really loved what um, the pastor said this morning as he opened us up, that we're here. I call it the land of the in-between times. He talked about a chasm, and it's so true because we live here on this side. The, the price is paid. The victory is sure. But that ultimate fulfillment where we realize that justice and mercy is a long way yet to come. So as we traverse this world, we can be leaking vessels of pieces of his justice, but we're never going to know that satisfaction on this fallen, broken world. And if we don't realize that, then when we're in the trenches and when we're reaching our hand out to the oppressed and when we have the filth and the muck on us from that battle, then we're going to get really discouraged because we're going to think we didn't accomplish justice. It didn't come. It won't ultimately, but that does not excuse us from being in the trenches as he leaks it out until that ultimate day comes. Good. Sandy. One more little picture of justice is found in Proverbs 31, 8. And we often hear the, be a voice for the voiceless. But then the second half of the verse is ensure justice for those being crushed. And that ensure justice is a concept that I think God just puts in us. I mean, every time I'm around little kids, two and three years old, um, if you break a chocolate bar in half, uh, they, that's not fair. That size, that one's bigger. They want to ensure that we both get the same. They want to start at the starting line together. You got to start first. Um, and how many, if you, if you take someone like I grew up in a home where I had a lot of advantages, education, but if someone else is starting out in life without those advantages, how can we ensure that they get the same opportunity? And, you know, some of this is like what um, Tom was talking about with not gleaning the fields a second time. Do we really need so much? And I have to tell you what I did to put that into practice. Um, we don't do garage sales anymore. We don't run things through twice. If we don't need it anymore, then we give it to an organization that's going to use it. No more garage sales at my house. Okay, thank you. Chris, I have a question for you on the end. Um, it says, even Christian families sometimes put pressure on their daughters to have an abortion because of the shame they feel. How can we help those families to choose life? And after you answer, I'd love to give the bishop an opportunity to speak to that as well. This is something that, um, unfortunately, I was sharing early in our seminar. We see constantly, and it, it is, uh, when you're pregnant, it's the one sin that is out there for everybody to see, right, when you are unmarried and pregnant. It's so easy for us to hide everything else. And we see so many Christian families coming in, and that's their answer. We have a drive-through mentality. We're going to give a quick fix. And um, in one of the videos that we showed today, we have a mom and her daughter, and the first thing that happened is the mom said, I took my daughter to Planned Parenthood. That was the answer. But when I got in there and I saw what was happening and I really heard, I realized we couldn't go through with it. So many people don't understand. We all sin. There's not a person in this room that doesn't sin. And I think if we can take the time, take a deep breath, 
sit down and let's talk this through and walk this through um, together and realize that um, as a body of Christ, we need to come around people like this and say, folks, this could be me. And I I am going to help you walk through this. I don't know if that's answering the question, but, you know, our immediate reaction is, how can I get rid of this? How can I hide this? But it's not hidden from Christ. It's not hidden from the Lord. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, one more thing I want to say, but I, I've heard for years, you know, when you are in a Christian school, what happens to a young girl when she's in a Christian school if she gets pregnant? She's out, Right? Now, I don't have the answer. I don't run a Christian school, and I do understand some of the difficult decisions that they have to make, but does the boy out? No. So I think that as the body of Christ, we have to start examining how we handle sin. Should there be a price? Yes, we should, we should have maybe a repercussion, but it shouldn't be ostracizing. And um, so it is, it is a difficult thing, but I think we, all of us sitting out there, can help enable somebody to make a positive decision by having them sit down and take a deep breath. Bishop, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, over the, the years of, of my ministry, I've known probably several families, um, staunchly pro-life, really, very much opposed to abortion. And when the young daughters of those families became pregnant, panic set in. Maybe this is similar to what you're saying. Now, I'm not saying that they, they rushed out to get an abortion, but all of a sudden, everything that they were ready to say they knew up here, maybe even they believed here, was shaken, because now now it's hit, it's hit home. And that's why I think it is so important for all of us, no matter what our denominations, our churches, whatever, that we make it known to our people that there are people to whom they can go. There are places that they can go where they can receive help, where they can learn that there really are alternatives, where they can sit down and in a more reasonable way think this thing through. When it stays hidden, when it just stays within a small group, it, it, it can be very tragic, and, and I know that I'm very proud of, of the fact that the Catholic Church, and I know many other uh, denominations also, uh, certainly for almost the last 40 years now, have devoted a great deal of, of time and energy and, and resources to uh, providing that kind of help, both for those who are facing an unwanted pregnancy as well as um, post-abortive help and counseling for those women and men uh, who have gone through this and um, have come to see, you know, what a terrible thing, what a terrible thing it is. So um, we have to be there. We have to be there for those families and for those women. I love that. We have to be there. We have to be the church and be the family for folks when they're hurting. Tom, uh, talk a little bit about why you believe the church is so important for the work you do as you engage and continue with that life spectrum uh, dealing with orphans around the world. What, why does the church matter? Why, why, do you, why do you bother, if you will, to go through the church? I think very simply we believe that the church is the hope of the world and that the plan that God had for redemption on the earth comes through his bride, his body. And so our goal even, I mean, you look at 150 million orphans around the world, that's an incredible sum. That's a ton of, of orphans. But if we can mobilize 12,000 churches, and there's several hundred thousand in the United States, but 12,000 churches can care for over a million orphans. Uh, some of our, our churches who care for two or three orphanages, we only need about 450 of those kinds of churches. And so this isn't out of the realm of possibility of, of being able to see a vast number of orphans cared for in our lifetime. It's not, it's not something that's insurmountable. It's possible. And what I've seen, and this is what I love, is because we get to take people over uh, who are members of congregations, pastoral staff, leaders, elders, is that when you see the light bulb come on for those people, it transforms an entire congregation. doesn't matter if there's 200 people in that church or 10,000 people in that church. And all of a sudden, you start to spring other ministries out of that church. 
um, a, a great example are some of the ministries that you see out in the, in the foyer. Um, one of them I know from, an, from a series that was done here in town called Awakened. The church was talking about these issues. It was, it's the restoration ministry to have a safe home for girls right here. Uh, Jason and Michelle spawned, it spawned out of that particular event. And so you get to see all of the unique gifts of the people in the church come alive. And God starts putting different ministries on their heart. And pretty soon you see all kinds of things happen and many children being rescued. Mm, That's great. I would like uh, Sandy and Kimberly to speak to that. Speak to, as people leave here today and go back to their churches for the work that you do, what would be the top three things you want them to do? Top three things I want you to do when you go back to your church. Um, I want you to... That's a really good question. Well, three thank things. you. <laughs> three things. It's like getting three wishes. The first one is going to be that I want three more. Um, no. Uh, I, I want you to assess what's in your house. Remember, I talked about the story in 2 Kings chapter 4. I want you to assess what's in your house and realize that sometimes we want to go out there and do stuff that we, we have no experience in or that is just way out there, the resources are not available, but God often puts exactly what you need right in your own house. So do an assessment of what you already have, and then um, bring that to God, because then he gets to be the one to make the miracle. And in your community, um, look for the people that want to participate. They don't have to have a lot. You know, Elisha told the boys to go and collect empty jars, not to go and collect offerings. Go and collect empty jars. Involve your community because justice is something that this world wants to see. And we will be a witness in our community that is authentic and um, vibrant when people get to be a part of it. They experience it. They don't just watch it, but they experience it. And then lastly, um, uh, look for what you can do to do prevention with if it's kids who are neglected or orphans or in the system. It takes one authentic relationship. That's what the psychs tell us to prevent a child from becoming vulnerable to being recruited by a pimp. One authentic relationship. One person who is going to check in with them every week to find out what's going on in their lives. If you can be a friend to one child, that's all that I would ask you to do because that's one child we aren't going to have to rescue and go through the restoration process. Um, The really simple, easy answer is the one that I usually give, and that's give, go, and tell. Give, go, and tell. But what I'm finding more and more is that a lot of times, especially after a wonderful conference like this, we get really charged up and a lot of people start running out and doing something. And I, lo- I know I had been a missionary in the Iberian Peninsula for years and I thought I knew a lot about being a missionary until I stopped a comfortable ministry and got my hands really dirty. And once I got my hands really dirty, I really soon, I went out really fast. I, I'm an action-oriented person. And the problem is sometimes we go out so fast, I know I went thinking, I'm going to go do something. And after a little while, I almost quit. I crashed and burned almost, but by the grace of God. And so what I would say, instead of running out real quickly, I would say, get really still. Get really quiet. Dedicate. Instead of whatever time you would use to go on a mission trip or do something first, dedicate that time to getting alone and really quiet with your Lord. And let him show you what dream he has for your life. Let him speak to your heart. Listen for the song. Most of us don't know God's voice. We don't recognize it. Spend some time recognizing your father's voice and listen and listen and listen until you can hear that song that he sang as he knit you in your mother's womb. And once you know that song, you'll know how to dance in this world and justice will flow through you.
One thing I was just thinking about is um, my husband Raul always says, God has one plan. It's plan A. There is no plan B. And the plan A is the church, and it's the body of Christ, and that's you sitting here in this room. And in what we do in dealing with unplanned pregnancies and abortions and uh, a lot of sexual issues, there are obviously things in our lives, whether it has to do with any of the ministries that we've talked about or our ministry, there are things that have happened in your life that has get, have given you a platform. And there is no waste in God's economy. And I think it's really important to think about the things you've gone through in your life, what the Lord has allowed you to go through, and think, how can I take that, if I have an abortion in my past, how can I take that and turn it to good and God's glory? For him and for his use. So I, I don't know what it is, but I know there are things in all of our lives. And so when it comes to life and justice issues, I know there are things that we've all dealt with or seen or your sister's done or your boyfriend or your father or your mother, but we've seen it. And so let's, let's think about what that is and how we could take that and use it for God's glory. I think that's great. And we want to always remember we are here because of the love of God, of course, that transforms us. We are not here to do, was it you, Tom, that said earlier, somebody said to do something for God. We are here because things are from God. And we've been loved with an everlasting love. And we want that love to spill out to those around us. And so that is what what motivates us, what compels us, what sustains us. I read in the Psalms this morning the scripture about our foot almost slipping, but God's great love saving us. And when anxiety was great within us, that his consolation brought us great joy. And there are so many out there who need to know about the love of God and that great consolation and uh, the lover of their souls in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bishop Sheridan, I have a question here for you from the audience. It says, first of all, thank you for being here, so thank you. And uh, can you share with us some of the missions where folks might be able to volunteer in Colorado Springs in food banks, soup kitchens, safe homes, etc.? And then another question that was directed towards you, I'm going to give you a two-parter. If you forget it, don't worry, I'll remind you. But the two-parter was an observation that I think was a really good one, which is that there's been a lot of denominational strife over the last decades, and the person uh, who texted or tweeted in thought it was wonderful that we were all working together on these issues. So if after first you talk about the opportunities to be involved, you'd like to comment on kind of the unity that you see here, we'd love to hear from you. Very good. Um, from my experience as, as a Catholic priest, Catholic bishop, in this diocese, this Catholic diocese of Colorado Springs, as is the case in, in most dioceses, um, the, the opportunities to, to volunteer are kind of at two levels. I, I guess you'd say primarily at the level of parishes, the individual parishes. So many of them in, in this diocese do have food banks, food, food pantries, um, social justice committees in their parish that, that do outreach. This is where people live. This is where they worship. This is where they know people. This is where they see the needs. And they're everywhere. They're in all of our parishes now. Um, but also, <laughs> the Catholic Church is nothing if not organized and bureaucratic. So let's. <laughs> let's so you go up to the next level of. I'm of, from Focus on the Family. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> so you go up to the next level of, of the diocese, and there, almost every diocese has a, a, a branch, if you will, of Catholic charities of the United States, Catholic Charities. Um, a man from our Catholic Charities office is sitting there. I feel like saying if you have any specific questions, go right, <laughs> go see go him. right to him. <laughs> but I think everybody, everybody knows of the, the Marion House here in downtown uh, Colorado Springs, which is, it, it has a bit of a history, but is now a work that is of Catholic Charities, um, feeding as many as six or 700 meals every day. Uh, not simply and, and only to, to homeless, but to uh, sometimes the working poor who need that, that particular help to, to stay on their feet. Um, so many, so many volunteers are, are there uh, to help in that from so many different denominations. It, it's run by Catholic Charities, but it is truly an ecumenical uh, work. And I'm, I'm so very proud of, of that institution in our, our diocese. I didn't have too much to do with it. 
but um, I'm very proud that it exists. So there, there is a, a great opportunity uh, to volunteer through the services of, of, um, of the Marion House. So where people live in their parishes and, and through the facilities of Catholic Charities, there's no end to, um, I think, to the possibilities okay. for volunteering, helping. And what do you think about the uh, denominational togetherness that we're seeing at events like this and, and well, uh, I, other places? Well, I, th- I think it's great. You know, I, I, I grew up in the, in the Midwest in St. Louis, which is, which is very Catholic, very Catholic, you know. And so I, I get transferred out here, and people are saying, oh, you're, you're going to where all those evangelicals are. Were you so- scared? <laughs> Just a well, little. I, I, I took my evangelic, <laughs> evangelical pills to make sure nothing went, no. But no, it was. I, and so I... I Ouch! <laughs> so I wouldn't get infected. <laughs> but I, I, was, I was so pleasantly uh, surprised to, to see, not just on a human level, the, the friendliness of so many... Uh, people here and in, and, and in the um, some evangelical uh, organizations like Young Life, I've, I've had some things to, uh, to do with them. Uh, the Navigators, very, very pleasant. People here at New Life focus on the family across the board. Um, I was very, well, I don't want to say surprised. I didn't anticipate anything bad, but it, it's wonderful. I think in many ways we are on the same page. Maybe not everything theologically or, or doctrinally, but on these moral social issues, I think we share an awful lot. And the more that we can work together, that we could mobilize together, I think the more effective the, the, the work of the church is going to be. Oh, that's great. Chris, I bet you had something to say. Woohoo! Give him a hand for that. Isn't that the truth? Well, I, I just agree that. Um, there's always differences. There's difference in the Protestant denominations too, but there are things that we agree on and we need, just like you said, we need to work together to uh, be able to really blanket the community with life issues and justice issues. And I think it's very important. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of a, uh, uh, an organization today and this, this conference where we're all working together. That's great. Tom, my next question's for you. I want to know what you think is the next most significant wave that you're seeing. You travel all over the place. For those of you who don't follow Tom on Twitter, you really need to because you'll be able to globetrot along with him. Uh, If you never get out of this state like me, you'll be able to experience things. What are you seeing and what encourages you most as you travel uh, really all around the globe on behalf of the orphan? You know, I remember uh, early days, which weren't that long ago, of speaking in different churches and conferences, and you're talking about justice issues and orphan issues, and literally, you can look out into the crowd, and people are just, they don't get it. I mean, they, they were not resonating with what I was saying. I felt like I was swimming uphill, except for the young people. And they were, like, on the edge of their seat. I mean, they were, like, just ready, like a horse ready to burst out of the gate. And so as, the, as those years went by, I started to notice a shift. And that shift started to occur with more and more people in those conferences, uh, in those congregations, you, uh, I remember I was invited to the first conference that Saddleback did for the HIV AIDS conference, and I started to hear the stories come out of people like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. And I remember Bill Hybels weeping uh, as, and it, you know, it's, it's normally the, the, the wives who got them on board with the justice issues. I mean, that was the story, one story after another. And I remember Hybels weeping, saying, the Lord and I have had many, many conversations about this, and I don't know why, for 20 years of Willow, I never saw that it was central to God's heart to care for widows and orphans and the oppressed. But, you know, he's forgiven me and we're moving on. But all the rest of my life for everything that we do at Willow is going to be geared towards these, these situations now. And so that's what I've seen. Uh, I've seen a generation who is, who is really ready and on board and they're doing all kinds of things. I was just telling somebody there's something called the world race where they go a year on a mission trip. Yeah. A lot of our world race friends are here and uh, some of them are even leaving, but they go on a, a year long mission trip just to minister to the poorest of the poor and, and to take care of these babies who are in dumps. And I mean, unbelievable. So you're seeing that, but you're also seeing churches mobilized one after another. So I believe it is a move of what God is doing right now for justice, for issues of life, for orphans, for adoption, for foster care, and it's incredible to see. I want to have uh, Kimberly and Sandy weigh on that, but I want to really say something that Tom spoke to earlier, which is that 
this is not just the right thing, but we really can have a huge difference. This is so much more doable, I think, than people think. And the area that we're involved in at Focus on the Family, yeah, we're involved in recruiting adoptive families for kids who are forgotten in foster care. We've got orphans in our own country. We have more than 120,000 kids in foster care who right now, as we speak, belong nowhere and with no one and are awaiting adoptive families. And their kids that the world has said are, quote, unadoptable and they're throwaways. They're forgotten. They're hidden. There's 120,000 of them, but we have 300,000 churches in America. Let that math sink in. 120,000 kids and 300,000 churches. We can make a huge difference, and we're starting to see, and it's very, very exciting. Uh, Kimberly and Sandy, I'd like you to weigh in in terms of what are you seeing that most encourages you? Kimberly, I want you to address, as you answer that, what are some of your greatest needs in Sudan right now? Okay. Um, I think the next, your original question, if I understood it, was what's the next big wave? What's the next big thing we're going to see? And I think that as our eyes, as a church, as a body, as our eyes are opening, and you've, you, you've heard the cliche from the beginning of your involvement in the church, I'm sure that 20% um, of the people do 80% of the work, 20% of the people give 80% of the money. And this, it, we're seeing that here, and I think Tom's talking about that when he talks about the young people are the ones really responding but I also know in something like this, people, that 20% moves really quickly. And sometimes moves before counting the cost. And sometimes moves before preparation. Sometimes moves before they've really heard the Lord, how he wants them to move. And exactly what he wants them to do. We're not quite in touch with him. We know we want to do something. And we see this all the time. Kelly and I were talking this morning that there's this whole wave of really people with their heart broken for the foster care system, for the loopholes in the foster care system, or even in the adoption program. And so they've adopted two, three, four children in response to God's broken heart. They're taking in many, multiple foster children, but we don't have the right infrastructure yet. And they weren't quite yet prepared. It's there but maybe action so quickly that we're seeing a crash and burn syndrome and we're seeing sometimes parents, even after having a child for a couple of years, turn the child back over. And this is why it is essential that as the body of Christ, we wrap around these families. These yes. families are hearing from God. The, the solution to what is hard is not to not do it. That's it's right. to rely on the Lord to give you the strength to go through. I don't think I've shared today. My husband and I are blessed that the Lord uh, created our family through the blessing of adoption. We have four children through adoption from foster care. And as we have uh, talked with countless families all throughout the country over these last uh, many years, a decade or so, what the families need is the church to wrap around them and to support them and to walk the walk with them. And, and so uh, if I could answer my own question, I think one of the next big waves in the adoption movement, frankly, has nothing to do with adoption. It has to do with post-adoption support that is brought to the families by others who are not, in fact, called to adopt. So tangential there. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, just because you said that, real quickly, I just want to say that um, uh, a Catholic man in, in, in this diocese, through his family foundation, has um, started something called um, uh, Fostering Hope. You know about that, okay? And uh, that is great. I don't, I don't know a great deal about it firsthand, but that's precisely what they do, is reach out uh, to give support and help to foster families. So very happy that we have that. I'm that's sorry that's where I was headed with this because this morning it's something that uh, Pastor Brady said really caught me. And he said, a lot of times while we aren't seeing the widow accept our invitation to come in is because there's not a family for her to come into. 
And what Kelly and the bishop are talking about is us doing a better job of being the body, mentoring these young people that want to go out and do what Tom is talking about, investing in them, supporting them, hearing their, their stories when they come back, weeping with them. Whereas so often I've seen so many people, including me, come back and you're so broken and you're so desperate and you're so angry and you don't know what to do with yourself and everybody just looks at you like, what's wrong with you? We're happy at church. Why aren't you happy? I've had somebody ask me recently after reading my book and all the hard stories, she said, but are you in a happy place now? I said, no, and I don't aspire to be because happy is such a temporal place. I don't want to spend my life clamoring for something temporal. I want to find that joy of his dream. And I think that's the next wave is us catching that this isn't just our duty. This is our greatest joy to serve him. Uh, Sandy and then Chris. Um, I think what I've seen, because I live in Southern California where our um, unemployment rates are still very, very high. And so the church is passionate about justice. Um, This is the justice generation. I'm on a college campus, and this is the justice generation. But what you said about the 20% and they just rush headlong. A lot of churches have, because of a lot of enthusiasm, rushed into things that then they couldn't afford and they couldn't sustain. And so the wave I'm seeing now is um, come and talk to us about sustainable long-term ministry because like um, Bill Hybels, they recognize this is something that is the fabric of the church. It's not something that's a parachurch ministry. It's not something that's a fad. It is something we have to integrate into the way we do church. And so what I'm hearing is a lot of people stepping back, having their own task forces in their churches to evaluate and to figure out what can they reasonably sustain and take care of the people in their own in their own congregations who have lost homes lost employment kids have had to drop out of school those kinds of issues so it's been a really tough time but because of that the things they're building are going to go are going to last and stay and stand because they're built on a lot of work not just on throwing money at things chris i was just going to say i'm uh, what Tom said resonated with me too. We have a son and daughter-in-law that just got back from the world race. And, um, and I see the young people sitting on the edge of their seat and they're not satisfied. And many of you are out there with status quo church and you want more. And I think it's our responsibility as the leaders to help figure out how to make that happen for them because they want so much more and there's such passion and such a fire. I just don't want to see that die. You know, we have to take it to the next level. And this is the beginning of doing that kind of thing, you know, having this kind of conference and saying, how can we mobilize you to, uh, you know, I, w- I don't want to see the, uh, the flame in my son die but, uh, since he came back, but, I, but we need to find a place for that mm-hmm. to continue. And right along those lines, a question from one of uh, our audience members is, what can college students do to prepare and get involved with limited income? And I'd love for you all to just take a crack at that and uh, speak to different aspects of what college students can do. We do a lot of that. Um, Our kids go out into really low-income, socioeconomically poor areas and do internet safety training. These are usually immigrant communities where the parents don't speak English well, don't have computer skills, but these kids are on computers. And we've had several cases of internet predators that have lured um, kids to Orange County that were then commercially sexually exploited. So our kids go out and, and do training for those after school groups. They go to high schools and teach on human trafficking. It becomes more of a peer um, uh, mentoring relationship. Um, in the summer, they, they canvass all the medical clinics and the libraries and they put up posters and they just put their feet to work and they find ways to speak into their community. And there's lots of opportunities for that. Uh, in, in our uh, campus ministry programs, 
here in Colorado Springs, and, and the resources for that that we have are, are somewhat meager, but I, I think a good job is done both on the campus of uh, Colorado College and, and UCCS, where um, we, we, we try to make the church present for those students that come sometimes from out of town, away from home for the first time, but also uh, through the services of Catholic charities. These students who, who are interested um, are, are kind of apprentice in, in, in any, any number of ways. Um, uh, I kind of kept up with one of these students throughout his, his uh, years at, at Colorado College. We would meet frequently. He would talk about uh, his work with Catholic Charities, uh, how it was, he was brought both into the parish and, and, and did things on larger levels. So we, we, we don't have a great, in this diocese, we don't have a great system but those young people that it touches and those young people that really are, are open to learning and to, uh, to making a difference in, in the mission of the church, making a difference in the world, we try to provide those opportunities for them. You know, college students are some of our greatest assets uh, because they'll do anything. Uh, I mean, seriously, they, they, they all, they're just fired up, ready to go. And so from, from internships, I know that's the case with, with I Empathize. They do a lot on college campuses. They take the experience uh, with them. So do we. I'll be on several college campuses uh, in a few weeks. And so, but we have been able to, to see how they mobilize themselves in incredible ways. There's acting on AIDS groups that, that have started in college campuses all over the U.S., and they will bring awareness. They'll put on events like this. They'll bring in concerts. They'll do all kinds of things that have a huge impact. Uh, we have colleges from Southern California who go on trips. And, of course, none of them ever have any money. But they all, all manage to, to find the funds. They raise it. They figure it out. Uh, it's just, again, it's putting themselves out there to say, I, I think that one of, the, one of the dangers is, and I do believe you've got to hear the voice of God. I do believe... Um, you need to be strategic. I, I believe all of that. But one of the dangers is sitting in our seat and not ever doing anything. Uh, because what, here's, here's the main reason. is that As long as we sit here and depend on our own abilities to run out and start a group on our campuses or to, to, to get, a, get a group of our friends to go on a trip to Africa, as long as we depend on our own resources and we just sit around, we're never going to be able to do that on our own. But the second that we step out, now all of a sudden the resources of heaven are with us. And we step out in faith, right? That's what faith is, is that we're not certain how this is going to work. We're not certain what's going to happen. But I can tell you story after story after story of college students, young people who said, you know what, I'm going to take a step in that direction. And all of a sudden, God does amazing things. Austin Gutwine is a, an example. He's not even a college student. Well, he may be now. He's a kid. He had no, no skills, no ability, and he created this whole thing called Hoops for Hope. He wasn't even a basketball player and started raising money for wells and schools in Africa. And now it's this this movement across the U.S. Why? Because he stepped out and did something. Mm, that's good. Chris, how about have, college students with your organization? Yeah, we have a couple of different situations at Life Network. We have the pregnancy centers as one outreach, and we have internships for counseling students and nursing students, and also um, in our Education for a Lifetime outreach, which is a whole person health abstinence to marriage education that goes into the public schools um, under the guidance of Dr. Diane Foley. Uh, they're trained, and, you know, if you have classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, then on Tuesday and Thursday, we can have you in the classrooms in different schools uh, teaching whole person health. And we focus on sexual abstinence, but we also talk about abstinence from all risky behaviors. So those are a couple areas that we have. Excellent. Anyone else want to add? Kimberly, did you want to add anything else to that? Bishop? I... I'm reminded of these things as I hear other other people talk, and and um, uh, we for the third year in a row now uh, on uh, Martin Luther King Day, we've had uh, a, a rally. Really, it's it's been a pro-life rally, but we try to connect it also with um, Dr. King's sense of, of of the equality of all people, the right to life, etc. And um, that was, you talk about stepping out, it was begun three years ago by a 10-year-old. A 10-year-old came to me and said, I want to do this, will you help me do it? And it's now three years old and gets bigger every year. And So, that is a little yeah. story. 
You know what I love about this? It's been, a, I think, a little bit of the elephant in the room that we haven't addressed head on, but it goes right to what you said, Bishop. This is January, it's Sanctity of Human Life Month, and in churches all across the country, you have a little bit of an either-or mentality. You have churches who either are focusing on sanctity issues and what they view as sanctity issues from a strictly uh, traditional perspective, maybe only issues of the preborn and end of life, and then you have churches that are passionate about justice issues. But for whatever reason, they haven't uh, also included within those justice issues uh, issues of justice for the preborn and for those at the end of life. And I think that is really one of the most exciting things about this day and about having all of you with us today is that we're saying, I think, uh, much in the way that you have led the way, uh, the church is going to be integrated on these things. We're going to have a comprehensive biblical worldview that says we care about all of these issues um, because Jesus cares about them all. And so I just think that's incredibly exciting. I have a really interesting question here. It's a changing topic, but as our time winds down, we've got 15 minutes left. Uh, a question about, for those of you who particularly who work outside of the U.S., talk a little bit about some of the cultural differences that you experience, uh, that you experience rather, excuse me, and how you get uh, to bridging that and to getting to the root of what is actually biblical and scriptural versus what are some of the cultural uh, things that we have. I don't know, Tom, if you want to start, and then we'll go to Kimberly. Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, well, um, of course, I mean, I think one of the dangers is that when you go in as an American to a foreign culture and you think you have all the answers, uh, you know, we sometimes get God complexes, those of us who are, are part of the non-poor. And we think that our solutions are better than anything that they can come up with on their own. And that's not true. Um, they, they have a lot to offer. In fact, we hear this over and over. I feel this way every time I, I go uh, to a foreign country. I feel like I have all this to give, but I end up receiving way more from, from people who are broken, people who have diseases that are going to take their life, from orphans. And so the, the cultural challenges for us are, uh, to find the leaders, the indigenous leaders in their community who just need resources. Now, those resources might take the form of, of financial resources. It may take the form of skills. But where can we help them provide the, the, the gaps that they don't have, close the gaps, and allow them to be the ones that come up with the solutions in their communities? Uh, I can tell you story after story of, of Western organizations or European organizations who have gone in, created all these great uh, programs that the people there never owned, and as soon as they're not there, guess what happens? They die. I mean, there's books about this over and over. White man's burden. Why $4.3 trillion has been dumped into Africa with very little results? Uh, it's because of some of these, some of these issues. We, we need to find the leadership. Find what God is already doing among the poor. Because he's working among the poor. I mean, it's not that he doesn't just show up when we show up. And, and how can we help them create solutions that are sustainable, long-lasting, so that they're the ones who are leading the charge. And those have been the most successful programs that, that we've seen, finding orphans who come out of orphanages, helping them provide skills, and watching what God does with them in their communities so that they're sustainable and long-term. And, and long Kimberly. I agree with Tom exactly, only I am going to tell a story. that <laughs> I like telling stories. Um, the first time I went to Darfur, um, I, oh, I was so scared. I was unprepared, and I was just scared to death and absolutely overwhelmed. And the whole time I just thought, all right, make it through this trip, make it through this trip, and you can go home and you can write a book about it, you can raise some money and ease your conscience, and you'll never have to come back. But the mistake I made was I gave this lost boy my cell phone number. <laughs> and he kept calling me. I'd left him like $5,000 and thought I did something great. So he kept calling me. So every week he would call me, and he would give me a report about what was going on in his community. And almost a year into th these phone calls, and I was getting ready, I was going to go back, he calls me one day. It's Luala Talk, the one that I told a story about this afternoon. Uh, it was Luala Talk, and the, the phone calls are frustrating because it's the satellite phones, and it's <coughs> a word or two. <coughs> so at halfway through the phone call, he says, oh, yes, and the violence, it's increasing. And I said, why, what happened? He said, well, and last week, a, a man, he killed a woman. And it wasn't even his wife. <laughs> man, I had to unpack that one for like three years. I did not know what in the world he was trying to tell me. It wasn't even his wife. So if it was his wife, it would have been okay. What does that mean? 
it, that story is to say that it just takes boots on the ground. You've got to just be willing to sit at their feet. I, what Tom said is beautiful. God is already working through them. It's not that we have the answers. It's They have something. God has given them something. Usually the wealth won only through suffering. We have something. How can we bring those together to do the body of Christ the way that he wants it done? You know, I think the stories are so powerful. No matter how much we talk about statistics, it's the narrative. It's the story that grabs our heart uh, as we read in the scripture about the grand love story that God has for us and how he came for us through Jesus Christ. As I think about the word story, um, Chris, I think you have so many stories to tell of situations that seemed hopeless, that seemed like abortion was the only answer, and God showed up and did amazing things. Could you just tell us maybe some of your favorite stories uh, from your work? Gosh, I have so many stories to unpack them all. Um, We shared a couple videos today, and uh, one of the videos, we have a young woman who had a, I think he was just a few months old baby, and found herself pregnant again, single, poor, no job, and she had actually gone into Planned Parenthood across the street from our pregnancy center, and She was getting ready to have an abortion and was on the table having an ultrasound and the Lord just spoke to her in a very clear way and she said, she started crying and she said, I never felt the fear of the Lord like I did at that moment and she ended up having to pay for half of the abortion and she left and looked across the street and saw the pregnancy center and walked across the street, and she said, you know, I walked through that door, and uh, there was a woman there, and we sat down, and she prayed with me and helped me to figure out how I'm going to walk through this, what I'm going to do. And this woman, um, young woman, started going to Bible studies, ended up having this incredibly beautiful little girl. Her children are maybe 13 months apart. It's just, they're really close. And, um, We meet with her every other week. We help her with whatever her needs are. And she has, you know, her story is just a a total about face. And so she's been able to, and I have story after story after story after story like that of, of, and, and some not always so happy, but many so happy because they had a minute to come in and sit down and digest what was going on. They had somebody there that was willing to listen, and it's the same with all of us, I think. You know, we we just need to listen to where they are and come alongside them and help them walk through these difficult situations without judgment um, and, and just be a vessel and let the Lord walk through it with us. For those of you who don't know it, there are thousands of pregnancy resource centers and pregnancy medical clinics across the country that do an incredible job of what Chris just described and as Chris has done so beautifully for so long and her husband and all those at Life Network of meeting that woman where she's at and being Jesus to her in that time. And the difference that it can make is is absolutely incredible. Well, with our time winding down, I'd like to just give you all an opportunity to give our audience, uh, both here live in Colorado Springs and participating with us via webcast, give them some last thoughts, and uh, and we'll close in prayer. Bishop, I'll ask you at our very at the very end then to please close us in prayer. Chris, can you put your headphones up? Gee. You know, there are so many different things that we can be compelled to do and to get involved with. And um, I think my thought for the day is just to do something. Do something. Find out what that little burning fire is in the pit of your stomach that God has placed there and, and start praying through it and asking the Lord where you can connect. And I'll tell you, every time I speak, um, I say, I know you're out there. I know the Lord has been nudging you, and we have a volunteer training coming up, and I go through that whole process and bring people to um, 
just kind of listening to what God's telling you. It doesn't have to be Life Network. It doesn't have to be Children's Hope. Just, just do something. Ask the Lord what it is he would have you do because much like uh, Kelly said, she was talking about how many churches and how many orphans are in foster care. It's the same thing. If we all mobilized and we all got involved and worked together and it's not about you and it's not about us, it's about what we can do for other people. I think it's incredible how this world would change. Just learn that song that he sang for you as he knit you in your mother's womb. I know that he did not forget the widow, the orphan, the oppressed as he knit you in his mother's womb, your mother's womb. And he will pull enough of us to care for those widows and orphans. And then there will be plenty of other work to do. Don't I agree with what Chris just said. It's not about one thing or one organization. Learn that song and then dance to it with your whole life. Justice is a heavy weight, and sometimes it gets really overwhelming. I don't think anybody here would deny that there have been those moments where you feel really alone. I was working in the Doctors of the World shelter in Athens, Greece, with victims. A new girl was brought in. She was from Moldova. And on her hand, there were razor-thin scars from her first knuckle all the way to her wrist, six razor-thin scars. When she was purchased, they put her in a room with nothing, and every time she knocked on the door and asked for something, they came and they sliced her knuckles to remind her that she had no rights. And she's sitting next to me, and I have nothing. I can't talk to her, um, and I've, I've just, re- it's like, God, are there any answers? And I left the shelter that day, got on the trolley. It's, it's a hundred and something degrees, um, and I'm hanging on to that wrist thingy and and I'm I don't know if you noticed I'm vertically challenged and so I'm about armpit height and so just the tears are falling and I I happen to notice um God just brings little things to your mind and and I noticed this little scar I got when I was 11 years old learning how to iron and I realized that wow if you didn't know it was there you wouldn't notice it and it At that moment, you know, I'm a nurse by training. I've studied physiology, and I suddenly realized there is such great hope. I'll call her Elena, because those six scars are evidence that God designed us for healing. They're not open wounds. God designed us for healing, and I was back there the next day. I would say the best ideas are yet to come. Uh, The best strategies to help the poor, the best ideas for development, uh, the best books to be written are still yet to come. I mean, it's how God works. He he works from glory to glory. And those strategies and those answers and those books, they come from you. I mean, God's put it in your heart. He's put you here for a reason. And so you have something that, that organizations that we represent need, that the kingdom of God needs. God is about doing something on this earth that the nations will look at and they'll go, unbelievable. It could have never happened unless God was in it. And, and I see, you know, as we talked about his kingdom advancing and what the next things are, and as God ratchets all of this up, who knows what he's doing in the world, but we know that he's serious about these issues. And those ideas and those strategies are going to come from you. Thanks to all of you. I think you've said it all. And let me just add this, this final thought. Um, oftentimes people will say to me, how, how can I help? I, I don't have the resources. I don't necessarily have the, the time. They want to be active. They don't know, either don't know how or, or their, their life circumstances um, make it difficult or impossible. And they will say, all I can do is pray for you. And that is no small thing. So if we're, if we're, we're, we're speaking to anybody who might be listening, please, we must never underestimate the power of prayer. The work of justice is God's work, and we ask him to do that and ask him to make us his instruments in doing that. So let's all pray, and everybody can be involved that way. Sure, that leads us into the closing prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
calling us together today. We thank you for all of the many gifts and blessings that you have sent into our lives. And through the, through the blessings of this day, through what we have learned and what we will continue to learn, help us to be even more mindful uh, to those among us who are in need, to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to those who suffer in so many ways. And Lord, we know that, that life and, and justice, this is who you are and who you want us to be. So we ask you to continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit, make us zealous and joyful ministers so that we may bring your love and your peace and your justice and your joy to those whom we meet. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Amen. Give our panel a round of applause. Thank you all very, very much. Well, on behalf of New Life Church, Focus on the Family, Children's Hope Chest, and I Empathize, we are so glad that you've been with us today. Truly, it's been an incredible day. For those of you who feel like you've been drinking from a uh, water hose, that's okay. <laughs> I think others feel that as well, but God is going to use it to do great things. I want to remind you, we're going to let you loose for dinner now, and then back here at 7.30 is going to be the I Empathize encounter. And this is something you are not going to want to miss. You enjoyed worship this morning as we began. That was the I Empathize band. And they have done incredible work using art to help draw us closer to the Father, to the Father's heart for the least of these. And I think it's going to be something that, uh, it, as I said, is, is a definite you don't want to miss. So thank you very much once again, and we'll see you back here tonight at 730.